Good morning. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading the entire Bible together, one chapter at a time. And you know what? It's time for another psalm. We are looking at Psalm 42 today, and it's an interesting one. Something that people don't know very commonly is that this, the psalms are actually broken up into different books. And Psalm 42 is the start of a, a second book of the psalms. And it starts off with a really kind of particular sort of way. Um, you know, sometimes people say, you know what, you really shouldn't be looking at Psalm 42 and 43 separately. They really belong together. So what you doing here? Well, I mean, our, our thing is chapter by chapter, right? So we're just going to do 42, but of course, we're going to have to take 43 into account today. It is very short, but there are some reasons why you might suspect why there was this distinction. It is a very ancient distinction between 42 and 43, and it's from Psalm 42 that even though it is short, you get this memorable line, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. And that's something that's come up in, in hymns and songs for a long time, just that, that beautiful imagery we have here. So joining us to look at this very interesting psalm, the, the psalm that kicks off book two of the Psalter, we have one of our regular guests, and as I like to refer to him, our psalms expert, <laughs> we have Pastor Kevin Parviz, pastor of Congregation Chayla Shalom, in St. Louis, Missouri. Welcome back, brother. So good to have you with us. And uh, we missed you last time. Yeah, sorry, I made, I missed that show, but it's good to be here. And thank you. You're one of the few guys in the Synod who can actually pronounce our congregation's name. So well done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, you know, I always have to check my my instinct to read it with like an ancient Hebrew pronunciation and do something like hi shalom, but like... um. I try, I try to, you know. Well, that's better that than what usually is said, which is Kavi Shalom. <laughs> Kavi. Yeah. yeah, no, actually, I'm not, that's actually not a made up thing. I remember that the first time I saw it when I had my field worker assignment way back when, that the person at the booth said actually Kavi Shalom. Yeah, and I was right. like, what's the V stand for? What? <laughs> Is that like a Roman numeral? Yeah, it's exactly. We're five of us. I wish there were. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But yeah, so we're looking here at Psalm 42, and it, it does occupy a very unique position here, doesn't it? Well, yeah, as you said in the intro, it's the first uh, first Psalm in Book 2, which is, you know, some call that a distinction between where David leaves off and others pick up. There is some controversy about that. Some still think that David might have written this psalm, and it's in the tradition of of the sons of Korah. We don't really know, but I think from the attribution, you just have to take it at face value. Right, right. You know, it's, it's, it's of course, interesting to try to, you know, read between the lines and do what you can, kind of almost in the way of an archaeologist, to kind of sift through the layers and get back to what was going on. But at a certain point, you're right, you just kind of have to go with what we have, because it's very difficult to build a case on what we don't have. Yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> um, but... It is, it is a short little psalm, and I really do enjoy it when we have these little ones sometimes because we can just read through the whole thing and kind of like soak it in and go through it at a, at a more uh, meditative pace. And so I want to start off today by just reading through the whole thing uh, and then looking at it piece by piece. But before we do, would you say a prayer for us and for everybody who's listening? Absolutely. Thank you. Abba Father, we thank and praise you for this day, and we ask your blessing upon our study today and those who are listening to us. 
through all the mediums that you have created and given man the ability to, to create. Uh, we thank you, Father, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would anoint all of us anew for understanding, that you would continue to grow us into the children that you have called us to be. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach, in the name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen. Amen. So here we go. Let's read the whole thing through, bearing in mind that the superscription that and the ESV occurs is all caps, small caps. That is verse 1 in the Hebrew. It's part of the ancient Hebrew text. So beginning there and heading through the end of 42 in the English Standard Version here. To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. All right, so there's Psalm 42, and as we said, you know, it really does pair up nicely with Psalm 43, but just just taking it as it is right here, you know, as a whole, the thing that stands out to me is just how many times you have the name God in the text. It's literally almost in every verse. It's, it's the majority of the verses you have God there. And sometimes it's even there more than once in a given verse. Um, and what's interesting too, is that, you know, all the different ways of referring to God in the old Testament. And we, we've seen a few, uh, we, uh, not long ago, we're talking about uh, Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah, which, which have that way that kind of overlaps with the Persians, the God of heaven, and there is that way that you see in the books of Moses, like Yahweh Elohim, or sometimes you get um, uh, some other forms like uh, Yahweh Sabaoth, the you know, general or kind of commander of the armies. So there's these different ways. But this here, it's just, it's just God, God, God over and over again. And that's, that's kind of uh, actually a part of a bigger pattern for this whole chunk of the Psalms, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, you mentioned 43. There's two courses of the refrain in 42 mm -hmm. that 43 ends with. 
Right. That in 43, you get that again. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You get that. That what I just read was 43 verse 5. So it, it really, they really are tied together and, and they should be seen as a unit. And in 43, there's, for instance, there's no there's no title. There's no superscription. Right. So all of that stuff is is very telling. And yet there is this kind of double psalm thing going on. But, you know, we, we've seen that already in the first part of the Psalms. Um, in the very beginning, Psalms 1 and 2, they also make a pair, don't they? Sure. And and I think you have you have this all, all the time. I mean, and we have the same thing in writings and poetry that we do now, where you, you can separate poems for the sake of of, of impact. Uh, you know, it's hard to know exactly why all of these... Uh, in in the Psalms, there it's one of the few places where the um, separations are not artificial, with all mm-hmm. the chapters of the of the rest of the texts. Right, that's yeah. right. And we so, kind of made up the other ones later, but this one is an ancient distinction. Yeah, and there's a function to those to those breaks. If nothing else, it's to take a beat and take a breath. Uh, <laughs> right, and that and and I think the the word God, the Elohim, that's in in. Uh, um, Psalm forty-two. It, it, it's mm. telling that it's not. I mean, there's there's a there's a an argument for it not being David because David never shied away from using the the, the word Yahweh to describe God, and mm-hmm. yet these guys do. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe it's a function of them not having the kind of um, personal close relationship that David has. Who knows? Mm. But there's mm. there is there's almost a layer of separation. That you mm-hmm. that you don't get in the Davidic Psalms. Yeah, that yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking about that, and I mean, it's very intriguing that perhaps you know, I mean, like I'm thinking about you know when we were in Numbers not too long ago, you know, the way that God even said, you know, when I talked to Moses, my servant, you know, I talked to him like face to face, but you know, for the rest of you, it's not going to be like that. You know, there's this there's this sense of of God um, choosing certain individuals to have these particularly intimate relationships with. And, you know, you can see that as a result, you know, in the language of David is just his language is full of, uh, of Yahweh and hallelujah yeah. and all the rest of it. It's just he doesn't shy away from using God's name. He's very familiar. So I, I think that um, idea that about the kind of maybe a little bit more distance here, I think that makes a lot of sense. Something else I was thinking of, too, is you do have this um, the, the refrain of the enemies, Right. Because it's not just the refrain um, of the psalmist here. Um, You know what? We were just reading that. Why are you cast down? And, you know, um, I shall again praise him. But you have the enemies coming and saying, you know, where is your God? Uh, Twice here. Which is very, very, um, I mean, it certainly leads us to the cross, doesn't it? Well, yes, I, th- I think I think so. It, it, we can see that definitely in the life of Christ, in that kind of you know apparent abandonment, right? That apparent uh, hopelessness, right? I mean, At least, certainly you know, as far the, as the words of the crowd saying, you know, where is his God? Let him call yes. upon him if he wants to save him. Yes, right, right, so. right, right. And I do think right there is there's there's that overlap there in the sentiment, either in that case or in this case, right? is this sense of like, 
it's it's a rhetorical question, right? Because it's not like they really want to know well, where right. is he? Where did where did he go? You know, there's so many places he could be. You know, or, you know, we have this location on Google Maps. Do you have right, do you yeah. have location sharing turned on? Uh, no, I mean, like it's, it's a rhetorical thing of like you know his God is not here, right. which can go as strong as to say his God is gone. Like there is, he has no God. His God is, is no more has been destroyed by the gods, no other more powerful gods. Right. And that's, that's very, a very common idea in the ancient world that, you know, you can just wipe somebody's God off the face of the earth. If you destroy their temple and their idols and, and subjugate their people, then, you know, there goes their God. Right. And so if that's kind of the idea that's going on, that there's a sort of, um, maybe a little bit of a conception of the, the God of Israel versus the gods of the adversaries, then using the term God could, could make a little bit of sense like that because, you know, we, we've said before, but that form Elohim is this like plural of, of, of majesty um, that, that kind of can sort of indicate that idea of, you know, the God of gods um, or, or like the true God or the, the almighty one or something along those lines. And so I, I wonder too, if maybe, maybe yeah. if that's a little bit what's going on here. And of course they do use um, God's familiar name once as they do, as they talk about him in creation. Uh, yes. and, and so there's the distinction between all of the rest of the gods. Yes, right. Yeah, that's that's in verse three. Well, why don't actually let's go ahead and read that far. Let's read the title through verse three and kind of chew on that little point that you were just uh, previewing for us here. So just going over it more slowly now, taking this first chunk, and maybe actually I'll just I'll just read the I'll just read the the, the title in verse one because I mean really there's just so much sure, actually in here, sure. and then we'll get to verse three next. So the, the title. To the choir master, Amaskil of the sons of Korah. Now, you know, that all by itself, you know, we, we've seen the, this this choir master collection in a few different places, <laughs> um, you know, even in the previous, in book one. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it says it's a, it's a maskil. And I guess nobody's really certain about what a maskil is. Um, you know, I, I do think it's interesting that when you look up the Hebrew root, you know, it's a root that has something to do with like um, insight or skill, and so I wonder if it's something like, uh, you know, kind of, kind of something akin to like wisdom literature in here. I don't know. That's an interesting um, I've question. Often, trying to, yeah, I've often wondered about the, you know, the little parent or the little footnote here. Probably a musical or liturgical term. Which, of mm-hmm. course, I mean, you can make that assumption because of the choir master and the role of the musicians in the court mm-hmm. and all of that. But the word maskil really is, this imparts a little wisdom. That word right. translates into, both into Hebrew and is also used in Yiddish. Uh, and in Yiddish, oh, okay. it is wisdom literature. Uh, oh, okay. And, and so you're supposed to get more from this than just an enjoyable song, you know. Right. This is also a teaching Right, and, and right. so that's the nature of the maskil is that there's you know this is a cue to learn from this. Don't just sing along. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Th- thanks for mentioning about the Yiddish. I, I had forgotten about that. Now that it, you say it, it's it's starting to sound more familiar again. But yeah, like the idea that, that there is a there is a lesson here in the midst of the singing, and of course that's an idea that you know we Lutherans like really treasure that. You know, the songs and the psalms that we use would also be for our edification um, and not merely our enjoyment. And we have so many wonderful hymns 
that we sing that they just, you know, they teach in a way that a sermon's not going to teach you something, right? Like they, they, they teach you on this emotive level and, and you can feel the lesson in your bones on a certain on sure. a certain level, you know, I mean, and there's something really effective about teaching and especially like maybe teaching even the children as they learn these songs, that, that there's something beautiful about learning through the, the praise and the song. Well, and that's one of the reasons why I, I and I, I try and I'm not going to be too, I'm not going to generalize here, but sort of the distinction between what we understand as contemporary Christian music and mm. hymnody is mm-hmm. one of the distinctions, well, contemporary Christian music might be more catchy to sing, and you know you can sing along with it in your car. Um, <laughs> there's such solid doctrine and teaching in the hymns that mm-hmm. we and that that's where the strength is. And yeah, these fifteenth century melodies are a little bit harder to sing. That <laughs> while we're looking at the music forces us also to consider the content. And uh, mm-hmm. I think there's such great value. I just don't want to lose hymnody. Uh, right, is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I've got a lot of admiration, too, for some of the contemporary artists who, you know, put the old classic hymns to, to, to newer to their, um, yeah. arrangements or who even write, as, as they put it sometimes, contemporary hymns. Right. And, and they are they're really trying to capture the essence of the old hymns that – that yeah, you know, maybe there's a more contemporary setting that, as you said, is maybe easier for modern uh, people to sing since we we don't quite have the musical training of right. some of the medieval choirs, right? Yeah. Um, but they still have that that kind of um, meatiness to them, right? Yeah. And and so yeah. this Maskil and the Yiddish is you know you get a funny little story about the villages of Helm. But they're not they're more than funny little stories. There's something to learn from them. Mm-hmm. And so that's mm-hmm. I think that's the nature of what this is being written about. Yeah. Well, and even even just the mention of the sons of Korah, I feel like is um there's there's a lesson there just yeah. in all in there all by itself, yeah, right? Because right. we, we actually went through that in numbers yeah. not too long ago and just how, yeah, you know, Korah started a rebellion and was challenging Moses' authority and saying, Hey, you know, you're not the only, you know, the descendant of Kohath. Right. So like what's what's going on here? Why are we being excluded? And it's all about you and Aaron, right? And you know, eventually he loses his life because of that rebelliousness, because it's rebellion against God and not just Moses and Aaron. But the great mercy of God is that the the descendants, the family of Korah, the Korahites, they are not wiped out and they maintain their position um, in the, I mean, I mean, of the holy things of the tabernacle. And so that there is this intense, and we see this in the, in the language going forward, there's this intense interest in the temple, I mean, in valuing the temple, right? And of course, the temple, that was the place where those those holy things, they went from the tabernacle to the, the temple. The temple was a continuation of that tabernacle. So it's almost like you can you can you can feel the the devotion and the dedication um, that that the Korahites had flowing from the tabernacle into this temple and the longing that they have to go back to that temple. Yeah. And it, and that's that's the whole function or the whole content of this psalm is this the psalmist is somehow separated from that and longing to be good back either physically or emotionally or you know if you believe some commentators it's david who is separated from the t- 
from the tabernacle because of Absalom or Saul, mm. you know, but um, whoever really wrote this, uh, and we don't even, all we know is the sons of Korah. Um, right. He is having, he is, I think, kind of having an existential crisis because he can't be in the place where the holy things are done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, how how is he going to continue on? How is how is his faith and how is his piety supposed to work if he can't be there? You know, and like we, you know, I was mentioning Daniel earlier, you know, and there was a little bit of that existential crisis going on. You know, um, we, you know, Daniel features prominently this prophecy regarding Antiochus the fourth. And, you know, when he put an end to the regular burnt offerings morning and evening, you know, there was an existential crisis there too, mm-hmm. right? You know, like, yeah. well, how can God be with us if, you know, we're not doing this anymore? If he's not here, like eating and having fellowship with us, you know, and, and what what will be left of us, right? You know, um, you know, is is it going to be a final exile that there's no return from? So there, there are definitely these dark moments in the history of God's people like this. And of course, the irony of this psalm, as well as the joy of this psalm, is that the whole business of the Exodus was God showing himself that he wasn't a localized God. You know, mm-hmm. he, he's the God over everything. And, right. and, you know, all the Egyptian gods were localized, and, and God is not localized. And yet our nature is to localize him into the temple and not think of him in our homes, right? right? And so you have this writer who's separated from the presence of God in the temple crying out where, you know, because he feels that separation, yet concluding that I have hope in him now because he's with me now. Right. Yeah. No, that's a really good way of putting it that, you know, I mean, he, God is localized in in a gracious sense and that he, he promises to be certain places at certain times so that we can have confidence that we're going to receive his gifts and good things. Right. But we should never take. Sure. Exactly. Right. Like the Lord's Supper. But we should never take that and run with it to say like, oh, well, God, our God, he's right here and he's not over there. Right. Yeah. And this is this is like the spot where he hangs out and that's where he's at. And, you know, uh, you know, Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, he, he kind of talked that way, like, oh, you know, Yahweh is the God that's in Jerusalem. And then there's another God over here, mm-hmm. another God over there. And, yeah, all you guys go build your temples and your gods and, you know, may your gods um you know, beseech the great Marduk on my behalf, right? I mean, that, that that's the way that, you know, that, that they thought of it. And that's the way that, you know, that we think about it too often these days as well, that, you know, like God is kind of like the God of this part of my life. And he's the God of, you know, this sun, Sunday mornings or right. something like that, right? He's at church. But when it comes, yeah. yeah, right. But when it comes to like, you know, uh, politics or diet or, you know, my work week or my professional life or my love life or whatever it is, he he's not there, right? So I mean, it's it's crazy, but I sometimes think we, you know, we we kind of dismiss uh, the, the pagans, the ancient pagans, like oh, you know, the how how you know small minded they like they thought that gods were only in certain places, but we do the same thing in our modern context. Exactly. Well, so so we have so there there's our title there, um, and then we've got these these first couple of verses that really fit together very nicely. These these first two, this this thirst metaphor. So let's just read these here together. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? 
So as you were just saying, you know, this, this language of appear before God, this thirsting is, is referring to being in the presence of God, uh, presence of God referring to that special promised gracious presence, the kind that you'd get in the temple, you know? And so it, it, it really is when we, have this metaphor of thirsting, right? You know, you, you kind of wonder to yourself, well, in what sense are we thirsting after God? Do we, do we feel like this need, this, this void here? And, and it's that to go and to be with the praising throng, right? To be there in the temple, you know, to be in the promised holy place of, of receiving a grace, you know, that, that means of grace, right? That's mm-hmm. what the temple was. Right. And, and so that, that metaphor there, it, it's, it it struck it actually struck me really reviewing this um, before we went on. Like I was thinking to myself, have I actually seen a deer pant for flowing streams? I don't think I've actually ever witnessed that. <laughs> but you know, it's it's. Um, I think we can still appreciate the imagery, but um, it, it is ironic that it, it is a little bit removed from us, even in that level, right? Well, because we don't live in the arid climate like Israel, right? Mm. Where there are, you know, these wadis that are just dry stream beds most of the year. I mean, mm. the deer who might go to a wadi to get a drink and see this dry stream bed would then pant for a flowing stream. Mm. And so mm-hmm. if you lived in that that community where you have that sort of climate, we might understand that a little more. Yeah, that's I, I like I like the way you're framing it there. You know, I mean, it's um, I can't help but go there. But like in my head, I'm thinking, you know, panting. Well, that's thermal regulation, right? But like, um, <laughs> but you know, in in the sense of you know, if there's this poor deer that just you know is wandering around looking for water, I liken this to my cat sometimes because my cat's just weird, and <laughs> I put water out for the cat, but the water that I set out's not good enough, right? Ah, sure. And so you know, the, 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 the cat. cat just wanders around, <laughs> right. and wanders around it. And the cat is hot. And so, you know, these mammals, they, they pant um, to, to cool off. But, you know, they would really love some water right about then because that would sure help the situation. Your and cat it's, says it's a regular only thing. Aquafina, right? Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Bottled well, actually, water my, only. Well, actually, my cat's even worse than that. It's like I only want the water that comes from like the air conditioning compressor ah, or something like that. I mean, the cat's just bizarre. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I do not pretend to understand that. But on that deeply theological note, I think it's about time for our break. So, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, everybody, hold, hold that thought. Um, we're looking at Psalm 42 here on Nice Strong Word, and we'll be right back. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back, everybody, to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're looking at Psalm 42 today, the psalm that kicks off the second series of psalms in the Psalter, Book 2. And we're joined here by Pastor Kevin Parviz, pastor of Congregation Chaiwa Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. 
and we managed to get through verse two. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, we're, just, we're taking our time and we're savoring this here. We were just looking at the metaphor here of, of, of panting for flowing streams, you know, and I really liked um, brother, the way you were putting that, that, you know, like, and especially in an arid climate, you get warm really easy, easily. And you're just, you know, maybe disappointed as you come up to a, this wadi, this dry river bed and you're like, ah, no, like no water still. And so, there's this disappointment and this and this longing, and the Hebrew verbs there are ones that are habitual. They're describing an, like a situation that happens kind of again and again regularly. So you have this sense that you know this has been going on for for some time. That he has these moments of just oh, what, when am I going to get back to the temple? Um, and this keeps this keeps happening to him. So it, it's a prolonged thing. But, but then in verse two, the, the verbs are in that present moment. So he's in the midst of one of these, um, you know, I think you use the term like existential crises uh, at this at this moment as well. You know, just most recent time of just oh, when is this? When am I going to get back? When am I going to get back? Yeah, you can almost so, see him. He's got a lot of dry, dry creek beds in his own life, apparently. And he's, right. He's right. Searching. And yet in three, we have this lovely transition transition. Because mm-hmm. he does well, get yeah. water, right? Yes, that's that's right, and and, and that's you know that's um I, I liked what you were just saying that like you know, there's these moments in his life like it, it's really a mixed thing, isn't it? I mean, it's like a curse, and there's also some blessing in it. That there are these moments where we're driven to really long for God, and we say, "Man, I really, I really am looking forward to getting back." to church on Sunday. I'm looking forward to being with my brothers and sisters. I could really use time in prayer right now. You know, we, we have those moments and, and the irony is like, it's, it's good for our souls that we'd be driven to feel that way. Right. That God uses those moments to bring us closer to him. But on the other hand, you know, it's, it, it's often because of our own sin and straying yeah. that we end up feeling like that. And then the guilt that we pile on ourselves and feel like our sin can't be even forgiven by God. Right, right, and that, that, that ironically can just keep us away from the thing exactly. that we want. That, that we yeah. need so much. So, so here then, in the midst of that sort of vexation, we, we hear more from the psalmist in verse 3 and 4. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. So, you know, there, there you, I think you have it, that idea of festival there. We know that there were certain times and we, we saw this um, even um, when we were going through numbers, there made some mention of it. It's explicitly dealt with in a very, very particular way in Leviticus. But there were certain festivals during the year that the expectation was that every Hebrew male would go to these things. Um, you, you, you were obliged to. Um, and, of course, it wasn't really an obligation in the sense of a burden because, I mean, it was a joyful, festive thing. You know, it's like, um, you know, you, you want to go to Disneyland after you win the Super Bowl, right? I mean, right. it's just <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a nice thing. And so. You know, there's these these moments where you're supposed to go um, and be part of the procession and the praise, but he's not been able to do that. And, you know, you put that together with the language of two, and it's probably there's a couple of festivals that he's missed now. And it has something to do with these adversaries in verse three, right? Yeah. And the, the interesting thing about this is in the Jewish, in the custom of the Jewish uh, calendar, 
and in the synagogue, this psalm is read on Sukkot. And Sukkot is when Jesus was at the temple, and on the great and last day of the festival, they pour out these large urns of water onto mm. dry ground to show forth mm-hmm. how God is going to provide the harvest for the following year. And Jesus uses this language like, come to me, all you who, you know, and I will make streams of living water flow from you. And right. and, and so they, the Jewish community says this <laughs> psalm on Sukkot, yeah. which is such a lovely gospel bridge to what Jesus is saying. Yeah, isn't that like in John chapter eight where where you have that? John seven, I think. I think. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, seven? yeah, yeah. It's maybe seven. It's seven or eight. Yeah, in that area. Yeah, 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 and, and yeah, that is, that's so right. I mean, he goes and he takes that that water imagery and just well, and of course, you know, in in John, the, the whole living water imagery is just all over the place. You get the water flowing from his side on the cross, and you oh, also yeah. got the mention of this the streams of living water when he's talking to the woman at the well, right? Mm-hmm. But all, all that idea of, you know, being being the thing that we've been missing, that we've been longing for all along, that that hole that, you know, we, we, we've been trying to fill with different things and nothing's been working. And he uses these sermon illustrations of the well and the poured out water from the priests in the temple to, to talk about himself as living water and the water that mm-hmm. flows by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Right, a well, a well a bumbling up to eternal life, even mm-hmm. um, not not just water that will you know satisfy um, one you know bout of thirst, uh, you know one of these moments of panting, but one that that satisfies forever. And you know, so so you've got. I mean, that that is like it's a thank you for noting that. That yeah, there's this connection to Sukkoth, um, one of these uh, festival festivals uh, where you were supposed to be up at the temple. So th- this guy here, um, wh- whoever he is exactly, um, perhaps just, you know, uh, a son of Korad, one of his descendants, uh, a Korahite. Um, here he is. He's been separated from the temple. He wants to go. He's missed probably some number of festivals here. And it has something to do with these adversaries who say, where is your God? Mm. And he doesn't really t- go into much detail about them, does he? It could be internal adversaries. Hmm. Yeah. What, what do you what do you have in mind with that? I mean, the 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 doubt that builds within us when we become so crushed by sin and by the world and by sin, death, and the devil, and you know that holy, unholy trinity, if you will, uh, yeah. that that leads us obviously to those crises of faith and those where sometimes it is ourselves who says, "Where is your God?" I mean, the, yeah. the psalmist will say, there, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Right. And we're right. all foolish at one time or another. Yeah, that's that's so true. I mean, I I mean, I mean, I feel that, 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 you know, I am my own worst enemy too often. And that if there's any obstacle between me and God, it's just, it's just me mm-hmm. that, you know, it's not like I have some kind of external force. I mean, and the Israelites did have oh, sure. literal external forces all the time, you know, and and if um, and there's some you know indication back in uh, well coming up in verse six here that perhaps this guy is stuck up in um, you know the northern kingdom and and for some reason is unable to get down whether that's because I don't know this is the time when the Assyrians have have gone and taken things over um, and so the northern kingdom isn't even isn't even functioning uh, as such or 
or if this is just, you know, the time when there was a lot of idolatry going on in the North. Of course, there was idolatry going on in the North and the South, but it got really bad in the North first. And so if this is even like, you know, the alleged fellow Israelites um, who have just turned aside and who are making it next to impossible for him to go down. So, you know, if it's an external force, it could really be in that setting. But I mean, it's really something, as you were saying, to think about just how I just am the person who stops myself from enjoying the the means of grace in uh, in the fellowship of the brethren. I'm the one who gets in the way of spending time in the scriptures. I'm the one who gets in my own way when it comes to spending time in prayer. I mean, I'm the one depriving myself so often, the one who's saying, as you said, where is your God? Mm-hmm. Now, granted, we do, you know, we took, we have to also consider the plain meaning of the text, which is a they, multiple yeah. adversaries. Yeah. Uh, so Babylonians, Assyrians, uh, other Israelites, who, wh- whoever it is. But I do think mm-hmm. part of the they is me. So. Yeah, well, well, it certainly always is, right? Because, I mean, you see that clear message from the Old Testament is that the only reason why the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians or anybody ever comes is because of the sinfulness of Israel, because they have neglected their God. And so the the external they is always just kind of a mirror of that internal they, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's, that's certainly good food for thought, better than uh, the food of tears, right, in <laughs> verse 3. Um, but let's go ahead and keep pressing on here. We get the first instance of the refrain in verse 5, and then you get some more water imagery. We've kind of been talking about these different sorts of water imagery. I mean, it's, it's really interesting to see all that flow together. That You start with like the deer panting for flowing streams, um, the soul thirsting, tears flowing and, and now we're going to get some more poured out yeah. yes right um, pouring out the soul and now we're gonna get a little bit more water imagery here so next few verses here beginning with verse five why are you cast down O my soul and why are you in turmoil within me hope in god for i shall again praise him my salvation and my god my soul is cast down within me Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep, and the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. All right, so pausing there, um, th- there's some more. I mean, so there's, there's kind of two things here. There's some geographical language here. Um, you know, trying to kind of locate this a little bit, but then also this, this, again, this water language, deep calls to deep, um, you know, and that's that language. Um, I mean, I think that's the term if, if I'm, let um, me look at the Hebrew just to be sure, but yeah, I mean, I think it's that, that's the, the language that's from Genesis, right? Yeah. Like the kind of primeval deep, you know, when there's the, the watery abyss that God, you know, creates out of. Um, and the idea of the, the roaring waterfalls and the breakers. So what, what's going on here with, with talking about this sort of water? Well, I think the, I think the writer is now moving toward the idea of the localized God to the God of creation. Hmm. God who is all, who has, who is over all things. I mean, I've always taken the, 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 the the line from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar, that's from the river valley to the highest mountains. I mean, mm. there is this 
this perspective of I remember you in my in my lows and my highs. You are the creator of the river valley, the highest mountains, and the deep again. You know God's spirit hovering over the face of the deep. Uh, but you also have this context of the oceans. In this case, perhaps the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, uh, which is for them chaos. It's not something they want to even cross. Um, mm-hmm. And that's and so you know even in chaos and and in all of this language, and if you think about waterfalls, breakers, waves, that's all this kind of very um, busy activity. There's just no, mm-hmm. there's no silence in that. Right. No, it's the language of being overwhelmed yeah, by chaos, yeah. right? And and that that phrase at the very end, you know, that that they've gone over me. Um, you know, looking at the Hebrew, it looks like the term that we've seen. It's actually a. a, a turn a phrase that we've seen in some of the earlier Psalms of David, where he says that, you know, his sins have like, you know, gone over him, like in the sense of like the water is rising, the water is rising and now you're up to your neck in it. And now it's up to your eyeballs. Like, you know, like you're, you're drowning in it. Yes, it's overwhelming. overwhelming, drenching. Yeah. And, right. and, but you have this language in this whole section of not only the, the lowest point, the, the river valleys and the highest points, yeah. the mountaintops, the sea, the roaring waters, all this chaos that's going on. And then you have verse eight, which is day and night. And so there's mm-hmm. all this good creation language of which God is no, not just localized. So he's, he's moving, he's saying, how can I not be with my God when he created all of this and he is everywhere? Yeah, no, that, that, that's actually, that's really, well, let's go ahead and read verse eight. It says, by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Yeah, and, and so looking at that, you know, sometimes, you know, the imagery of day and night is a little bit dualistic. Like, you know, you know, God is the, the God of light and night, you know, is, is the chaos, the cold, um, you know, being away from the warmth and the love of God. But not here. Here, day and night are both put in context as good things. God commands his steadfast love by day, and at night his song is with us. That, you know, day and night are both good things from God. And so as you were saying, I mean, this does really evoke Genesis, that day and night are the first day, the the first day's work, right? The first Mm -hmm. day of creation, day and night. Um, You know, there's no day and night until, you know, after God gets that going. And that, you know, you see this also, too, in the Exodus, even that when God's there commanding the waters and showing his mastery over the waters, I mean, he's also separating light and darkness and manipulating those things to the advantage of the Israelites so that they can make their escape. And so there's that sense of, you know, God does all this creating to give us life, to save our lives. And here in the psalm, yeah, there's the day and there's the night. And he is the God of my life using that short form of God that you know, that you mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. ale, right? So, so it's not just kind of creation in some kind of, you know, like abstract theoretical sense. I mean, it's, it is there coming to the fuller realization. This is not just some local chieftain, some kind of local deity, but this is the God of the universe, but not just in the abstract, but also in that very intimate sense um, that Luther gives us when he explains that first article of the creed, you know, um, 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What does this mean? I believe God has made me. And knowing creation is to know God as your individual creator, mm. first of all. Yeah. And, and, that's, and, yet, and, and when we hold on to that, we can overcome this sense of being separated, but then we do have a final adversary we have to deal with. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's, I think we get some of that. And, um, you know, you were good earlier to point us out to some of the, the Christological overtones here. And I think we'll kind of get that in a bigger way, focusing here on the next couple of verses. Um, so we can look at nine and 10 and we'll just go ahead and read 11 too, since it is just the, the refrain over again, capping it off. So the last three verses here of Psalm 42, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. All right. You know, the, the first time I read that, I, I, I have... I have to say, I was thinking kind of more in terms of like the setting of, you know, our, our kind of um, hypothetical Korahite here. But after you kind of set me up for it, I just, I just couldn't help but just think of the cry of dereliction and just see the cross the whole way through these last three verses, right? Mm. And, and for us too, because that final adversary, even for us, is death. And we can, in our sickness and in, in our contemplating death, feel like God has forgotten us. And if it were only for the cross, we would have no assurance that he hasn't. But mm. we also have the empty tomb, uh, the, the resurrection that gives us the hope that even death does not have a victory over us. Yes, right. That there's the, the life of Christ that, that flows out from that, that rocky tomb. Yeah, th that mention of my rock, you know, I mean, we, we saw in, in um, Exodus and Numbers, you know, how God commands Moses to speak to the rock or to strike the rock, yeah. depends on which one it, <laughs> it was. Um, but then the water came and flowed out for the Israelites. It's interesting. So even, even rock there can kind mm -hmm. of be continuing this water language that we've been seeing. And, you know, when we were just talking about John that, you know, in, in the crucifixion, you know, he gets, he gets, um, you know, pierced with that spear and, um, you know, kind of like in verse, in verse, uh, 10, there, a, a deadly wound. Right. And they, they did that to make sure that they were dead just to just guarantee it. Okay. You know, we've stabbed him with a spear. Like he's, he's dead, dead now. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so you can see that. And then what happened, water flowed from his side and, and, and more than that, when he was raised from the dead, what does he do? He comes and he brings water and he says, you know, go baptize all nations. Yeah. Like the water really begins to flow when he comes out of the tomb. Yeah, it's, a, it's amazing. It's a wonderful. I mean, I, I have often, I struggle with, because I, I do, I, I get into conversations with a lot of, I wouldn't call them adversaries, but anti-missionary types who try to argue me uh, back into my my faith of being Jewish. Uh, mm -hmm. And I often wonder if I, and they have very sound arguments and sound discussions, mm -hmm. and they can be very winsome. And 
uh, it can make a lot of sense that I have yeah. made all this up and, and, and left my people. But mm-hmm. it is this constant theme that is all through the scriptures that, that holds me. That is the rock. And there's no way that, that I can ever think of anything other than staying on that rock. Right. Yeah, Jesus is the strong word of God that holds all the scriptures together. All the scriptures are about him. And I mean, it's just amazing that, you know, this isn't, as we've been saying, this isn't even a Psalm of David. And it's like, it still just can't help like, but point to um, the the water flowing from the side of Jesus Christ on the cross, you know, like, and of course it's, it's not just even that, like the water or the, you know, the adversaries that taunt him, you know, who say, where is your God? I mean, think about it. You know, what, what did he say? You know, he says like Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. You know, and, and people they hear that. You know, Eloi, um, that that form that means my God in Aramaic, um, and and so they say like, oh, is he calling out to his God? Is he calling out to, or they misunderstand? Is he calling out to Elijah? Right, yeah. And so th- there is that that real like similarity there. Um, just kind of like in the externals, but then in the internal, you know, that, that our Lord Jesus, I mean, it's just, it's just fascinating because you don't have any other description of anyone in, in, in scripture of someone who really just enters into, as you said, the ultimate um, vexations of the soul that our Lord Jesus was a man of sorrows and, you know, more than even Jeremiah was, that he really went into it, into the the mire of human experience, facing down death itself, and in the most, uh, I mean, in the most stark, in the starkest terms, you know, that it is he who deals with the ultimate problems of the soul. Yeah. And then, then we have you know the lovely refrain again, where it ends up with a form of Jesus's name in Hebrew. You know, my mm. salvation and my God. Right. And uh, you got to love that. Yeah, right, right. It's, it's, it's um, not the, you know, Yahweh form, right? But like certainly just even just seeing, um, you know, the, the form there, it's uh, Yeshuot. Right. Um, my, that's kind of interesting, actually. I hadn't Jesus. noticed that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, just, just all by itself. Um, it's interesting that that's like the plural there. I just right. noticed that. So right. it's kind of that like kind of abstract uh, form there. It's not just the kind of normal Yeshua. I I confess I had not actually paid any attention to the fact that that's a plural. I don't know if that's something that you had thought about. Uh, I, I take that to be the plural, the same as the plural of Elohim, right. which is this kind of creator God who is everywhere in all things and in all places. I mean, it's the majesty, the magisterial, sort of the royal we, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because it is addressing, because it, yeah, it is an interesting, it's an interesting expression here. And I think the ESV actually has a note on this, that it's it's not... I mean, it's translated here as my salvation and my God, but it, it's not just the, the normal way of just saying my God, like God, and then like kind of the pronoun, like my stuck right, on it. Right. Um, it's actually, let me see if, if we have that, that note there. Yeah, actually, so, if you look back in verse five, they give you the footnote that it says actually the salvation of my face, yeah. that um, it, it is something along the lines of like, you know, 
you, my salvation, who are in my presence, something like that, or like the, the you, the salvation always before me. Um, yeah, the, it, it seems like there is that unique way of he's just actually just calling God salvation before me. Right. And that has yeah. to draw us down to the ironic benediction and then, yeah. of course, God's desire to show us his face and then the fulfillment of that in the incarnation and all, all of those things that roll together. Right. Yeah, no, that, that of course, you know, definitely has that, that sense of, um, you know, God with us, Emmanuel, that, mm. you know, he's, he's in our presence. He's, you know, before us that, I mean, I mean, it's just as you were saying, you know, if he is before us, um, you know, before our face, um, it's because, you know, we are before his face. He's, you know, he's come and he's put us into that, that personal relationship, that close personal proximity. Like, um, you know, I'm reminded of um, in, in John 1, you know, and he, he was with God in that kind of really personal yeah. sense. And not so just in the temple, not localized. Not yet, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yes, here, always, even when at a distance, even in the midst of these, you know, uh, existential crises, you know, the moments where we feel our faith is weak, he's still there mm-hmm. um, because he is the the unconquered risen savior who knows no bounds and cannot be contained by anything. Yep. Well, brother, thank you so much. You know, only 11 verses here, but a lot of stuff in there, right? So stuff. thank you so and, much and for, 43 yeah. 43 will thanks. be a delightful continuance because there's a shift there too, <laughs> right? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. We'll, we'll have so to much. see if... Yeah, yeah. Thanks for thanks for coming on again. Really glad that we were able to to have you on, everybody. Pastor Kevin Parviz, pastor of Congregation Chayva Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. We thank so much our producers and our underwriters at the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Check them out online at lhfmissions.org. Until next time, everybody. I'm Pastor AJ Espinosa. Peace. You've been listening to Thy Strong Word. Produced by the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate Office of National Mission in cooperation with Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the LCMS. Your support is vital for this program to continue. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Thy Strong Word.